All right. I'm Gloria Halverson. It's my pleasure to be with you here today uh, to talk about this very important topic. And I like to wander and talk and use my hands. We don't have a pointer, so I'm sort of tethered to the computer here to change the slides. So if you just bear with me. I want to start with the story to tell you about why it's important for healthcare providers to know about human trafficking. And this story is about a girl named Jill. This is a true story. And do we need to have these bright lights on? Okay. Uh, Jill was a runaway teenager. I know I'm blocking some of your views, but there's two more screens here. Um, She was a teenager, runaway at 14. She had sexual and physical abuse at home. Not an uncommon story. Um, She was homeless. She went to a mall, and this guy named Bruce came up to her, and he offered to help her and uh, get her a job and take care of her. And so uh, she decided to go along with Bruce, and she got her in her car, his car, and that was how the whole rest of the story started. He took her to his office, which was the cellar of his house. He hung her by her wrists from the ceiling. He stripped her. He beat her. He tortured her. She had no choice to survive other than agreeing to uh, be a prostitute. He, in fact, had hung her by her neck so severely she wound up with a permanent scar on her vocal cords. So once she had agreed to serve as a prostitute, Bruce started bringing these clients into his home to have sex with her. And if the clients paid extra, they got to do whatever they wanted to do uh, when they were with Jill. Um, This went on for three years, and she suffered some really horrific abuse over this time. And she eventually got pregnant. So when she got pregnant, Bruce decided to attempt an abortion. Only he was not real successful, and Jill began to have a major hemorrhage to the point where he had to take her to the hospital. So when they got to the hospital, Bruce was hovering over her, and he was sharing with everyone how he was her older brother. There were um, notes in the nurse's notes about how concerned this brother was, always with her. And um, he told them how she suffered from schizophrenia, so like sometimes when she talked about being held captive and all this, they just felt so bad for her being so confused with her schizophrenia. And they accepted Bruce's story totally. And um, like I said, even when she hallucinated, they, they just wrote it off. She was there for three days. And she wound up in the operating room because she had to have a DNC. Um, she had several units of blood. She needed antibiotics to, uh, to prevent an infection. And the whole time she was there, even though they said she had schizophrenia, she never had a mental health consultation. Um, she was never questioned for the injuries that she had on her body without Bruce being present. And she was discharged from the hospital and was right back in Bruce's cellar as a captive. Bruce moved her around, and um, so they were in there. That's a good way not to get caught or let a woman get connections. And so they got um, to Arizona at a truck stop, and he took off her blindfold and her shackles, and he told her to go in and get a Pepsi. And she actually was so dehydrated and tired that she had a syncopal episode um, there at the truck stop. 
and they called the paramedics who came. And when the paramedics examined her, they found she was dirty from head to toe. She had sores on her ankles and wrists from these chains. She had bruises on the corner of her mouth from being gagged. They hydrated her and um, let her go. And um, Bruce took her and tied her back up again and put her back in the trunk. And there was a man and a woman sitting there in a Cadillac at this truck stop. They saw the whole thing. Nothing happened. And the only way Jill was able to finally escape was that Bruce was arrested on other charges. And when the police came to check his house, um, they found her locked in a closet and bound and gagged and blindfolded. And that's how she was incidentally freed. So you can see several points in here where the medical system could have done something to intervene for her. And one of the tragic things is that all of this occurred before Jill even reached her 18th birthday. So let me tell you about another girl. This is a 17-year-old woman. She was brought to the emergency room because she had a gunshot wound to her ankle. And um, her boyfriend brought her in. He was totally distraught about this. He said a drive-by shooting had happened, and that's how she got shot. And the people in the emergency room just totally bought that story and treated a gunshot wound, and she was released. Interestingly, three years later, this woman came back to the same emergency room with a gunshot wound to her other ankle because this nice guy who was there helping take care of her was actually her pimp. And when she didn't respond fast enough to what he was requesting of her, he shot her on both of these occasions. But again, that medical system didn't see it at all. Um, This was uh, published as part of an editorial um, called All the Darkness We Don't See in the American Journal of OBGYN. And it was a story, it's just a story of a girl being put to sleep on the operating room, her GYN procedure, her hospital gown being pulled up and seeing across her pelvis a tattoo saying property of and a man's name. And the attending asked the resident, did you see this before? And he said, yes. And so I said, what did you think? And he said, I don't know. I figured she was just that kind of a woman. And the anesthesiologist said, yeah, she's, she's just a prostitute. And neither of them realized that she had been trafficked for eight years and was being held captive by this pimp, but was just sort of written off. So the problem I'm trying to get across to you is that healthcare providers are often unaware or inadequately trained on the prevalence, the risk factors, and the health consequences of trafficking when really there is so much involved with health that we should be at the forefront of leading the charge on finding and caring uh, for these women. Just to talk a little bit about the general problem, It's estimated, of course, nobody has uh, for sure records, but it's, sorry, that didn't change. It's estimated that there are 21 to 27 million, million trafficked people in the world today. So that's an awful lot. And the way it's defined, there's actually definitions uh, that the government has and are used internationally 
because it has to do with aid from USAID and many other things like that. It's sex trafficking, which we're going to focus on, is the use of false force, fraud, or coercion to cause an adult to work in the sex industry. That means for a minor who's being prostituted at age 17, it's automatically considered trafficking because it's felt that she's not old enough to have maturely made that decision and voluntarily entered into this industry that she is being coerced and forced. So any teenager in prostitution is considered trafficked. Okay, that's an... That's important. And basically, there, there, there's two broad categories of human trafficking. Labor trafficking, you can see a whole list of um, industries that traffic people are in, a lot uh, in the fishing industry, if you look internationally. If you look in the United States, you'll find it at uh, nail salons. You'll find it at restaurants, um, illegal uh, workers brought in, not paid, having to work long hours, living in very poor conditions. And sexual trafficking includes all of the things that are listed here. As I said, we're not going to concentrate too much on labor trafficking, but I want to just divert a little bit to talk about the refugee situation because this is such a big problem in the world today. Uh, We know about the Rohingyas coming into Bangladesh and um, the terrible circumstances are in huge trafficking happening at those borders. If um, you look in some of the refugee camps, there's now um, in Europe 100,000 unaccompanied minors who were registered as having come into the countries are missing. Nobody has any idea what's happened to them. And I can tell you from friends working in Greece where they have all of these um, content, uh refugee camps, um, that an unaccompanied minor, you know, a parent in Syria um, who was afraid for their lives and the lives of their children and their villages are being totally bombed, thinks that this child's best chance and only chance might be to pay and get them uh, on a boat and get them out of the country. So a loving parent sends them, hoping for a better life, and they get picked up by a trafficker. And one of the things they're doing now is their traffickers taking them and they're selling their kidney or they're selling their eye or they're selling both their kidneys. So there's a lot of organ transplant trafficking that is going on too uh, in this population besides sex and labor trafficking. So it's just it's a horrendous problem worldwide. Um, what causes trafficking? Well, It's not simple. That's part of the problem. It's very complicated. And you can see a whole list of things here that feed into sex trafficking. Um, Natural disasters. You remember in Haiti uh, when they had the huge hurricane down there and so much was destroyed? Probably the only people in faster than some of the rescue workers were the traffickers. You know, you read in the papers about this missionary couple in Dominican Republic arrested because they tried to take some Haitian children out of Haiti and they wanted to take care of them and we think, oh my goodness, these people were trying to help, but that's exactly what the traffickers were doing. They were stealing these kids, saying they were orphaned, and they were selling them. 
So let's, let's turn. I know a lot of you are not going to spend a lot of time overseas, so I want to put some emphasis on things going on in this country. And this country is both a receiver country and a producer country, a source country for trafficking victims. And our largest group of trafficking victims in our country are teenagers. Um, it's the most common form of trafficking we have. And Can we turn it up? Trafficking. I came from a regular home with two parents. This happens to American girls in any neighborhood, in any state. A lot of people didn't think about it when they think about being a sex trafficked out and being brought from another country, chained up and behind. But I mean, girls from our community are being like kidnapped or brainwashed, being sold and being beaten every day, get by like it happens right here in the community and people don't usually recognize it because they don't know what it is. But it's not a joke. Or they just think they just see these girls they think that oh they they want to be out there. Right. Nobody doesn't want to be out there. Wants to be out and I think it's also like important for doctors and nurses and care providers to understand that we are victims and not, you know, just prostituting by choice. My name is Dana, and I was a victim of human trafficking. Sorry, we lost a, a video in there. That's okay. Internet is making it so much worse today. Parents have to be so careful of where their children are going on the Internet. And there are so many sites today and apps today that they can use that show their location of where they are, you know, talking from. And that's, that is a, a real problem. So I think in some ways for teens, trafficking is getting worse. Facebook and Snapchat and Twitter, all of these sites are being used for trafficking today. And uh, this poster from the Center for Missing Exploited Children, I think, illustrates it well. This meet 10-year-old Becky's 12-year-old Internet friend. They have no idea who is on the other side of that screen with them. So let's spend a couple minutes talking about who are the traffickers. And it, it, yes, there are women that get kidnapped off of the street, but that is not the most common. Uh, pimp is another name for trafficker. Um, it can be a boyfriend, a father, a mother, a brother, a coach, a teacher. It can be organized crime. They are getting more involved because this is the second biggest money maker uh, in the world next to drug trafficking. Um, but if you look at this study, which was done out of New York, 36%, a third of traffickers, are immediate family. It's a mother who's selling her daughter or a father who's selling their family. Or uh, a quarter of them are boyfriends, family friends, employers, the strangers, these kidnapping and things. You could see this is actually the smallest group. This slide I'm not going to spend time on, but you can just imagine there are many ways of conditioning girls until they will break and um, go along with what's being asked. I went looking for 
came around, um, had lots of personality, he had great social skills, everybody liked him, I felt very important when I was with him. He came to me and he told me that these gang members were after him and they were going to kill him if he didn't come up with $400. And he said, I need your help. Well, how can I help? I don't have $400 and I'm only 14. Where am I going to get $400 from? He says, well, I already got it all figured out. I've got some friends of mine upstairs and they've already given me the money. I have enough to go pay these people. I just need you to go be with them like you are with me. And I'm going to be in the living room. And if anything goes wrong, just call my name and I'll be there. And um, mind you, this is a setup. This is an initiation. So when I went in the room, these men were not gentle with me. Um, you know, I was, I was initiated. And when I called his name, he didn't come in and help me. He used lots of intimidation tactics. He only had to hit me a few times because the hit was so hard that I just never wanted to be hit again. Um, I remember seeing stars like they do in a cartoon. That was enough for me. He only had to tell me to do something once, and I did it. So the next step was to get me to go out onto the street, and, and that wasn't that hard after I was already pretty broken. So I blamed myself and um, hated myself and thought, and I started believing all the things that my trafficker told me. Hmm. Second in a row is our playing. I don't know why. Uh, let me just show you this. Look, now, um, going on from the... the the pimps to the Johns, the buyers. Um, this study is very interesting because this was a look at 137 minor cases. And in um, three quarters of them, the buyers were people in positions of authority and trust. You can see over half of them were working with children. Um, Teachers, school employees, coaches of teams, uh, first responders, faith community leaders. So there are people that you wouldn't expect. And part of the reason for these young women not trusting the system is because it may be the chief of police who is buying her services. So she's afraid of the police. She doesn't think that they're going to help. There's a lot of myths regarding prostitution. You know, oh, uh, she, she enjoys doing this. I can tell you, working in the brothels in India, going into these places and praying with the women there, every single one, when you ask them what they want a prayer for, it was to get me out of here. This is not something people are enjoying. Or there are people who, you'll read these internet chats, you know, well, I'm helping her out. You know, I'm... I'm paying her so she can make money. And women say no, but they mean yes. And I paid for it so I can do what I want. A real problem is the argument going on that legalizing prostitution will decrease trafficking. And I have to stop here for a minute because I happen to be the president of CMDA right now, and I had to sign a letter and send it to Congress yesterday 
because Washington, D.C. is trying to legalize prostitution because it will uh, make the city more safe. And the only countries where they have legalized prostitution has made trafficking worse. It is not the solution. It is not the solution. Um, This is from Annals of Internal Medicine. Human trafficking, also known as modern-day slavery, is an egregious human rights violation associated with wide-ranging medical and mental health consequences. And because of that, healthcare providers play a critical role in identifying survivors and engaging them in ongoing care. So I want to move into the medical um, part of this now and show you two studies. One is a little older study, and these are all women who have been freed and um, interviewed. And in the first one, 50% had been seen by a healthcare provider during the time they were being trafficked. In the second study, Laura Lenner's study from Indiana, 87.8% had been seen by a healthcare professional. And the startling statistic out of this is that not in one case did the interaction with a healthcare professional lead to them being freed. No one ever picked up that this was a problem. And we need to do better than this. So what kind of problems do they have? Um, it's all across the board. Laura's study, unfortunately, and, and I told her this, they didn't include gynecology in it. Because, but I can tell you that most all of them have gynecologic complaints. High degree of neurological complaints, cardiovascular, respiratory, GI, dental, over half have dental uh, issues. Um, so these are things that may bring them to you. Part of the problem, too, is they don't have good health care access. If they're being moved around, they don't know where they are. They don't know where health care is available. They don't, you know, it's not likely that the pimp's going to say, oh, listen, this is the time for you to go have your yearly pap smear done. Let's go get that taken care of. No. If I'm trafficking drugs and I sell you my drugs, I make money but my product's gone. If I'm trafficking someone, I can sell it to you and then to you and to you and to you and I still have my product to sell, but not if she's deathly ill. So they will wind up going to get health care, but it tends to be late health care services. Um, a lot of the health issues they have just come from the inhumane living conditions many of them are in and the uh, poor sanitation and, and, and hygiene that they have. This is a picture um, that I took from a brothel I worked in in India, and this is the woman's house. This is, this is the extent of it. She has this one room. The cooking is done in a pot over fire in the street. There's no bathroom facilities at all. Um, and she's got this bed that she uses for her business, and um, her kids can go under the bed if she's got um, people in. But, but this is the kind of conditions they live with. And when we would come out, from our gynecology clinic, especially as it was getting dusk, we had to be very careful when we stepped out on the street because there was so much garbage, there were rats running everywhere. So you can imagine how this will affect health care. And these are the kind of things that you see, the health problems, just from their poor living condition. Um, The picture on the top is a picture I took of some brothels in Nicaragua. 
and the bottom one is some brothels in India. So, you know, they're not, not the Hilton. Prostitution is not a victimless crime. Um, it's risky for both men and women. The average day, age of death is 34. So these, their health problems and trauma become so severe that many of them are killed. Um, and it's the leading, homicide is the leading cause of death for those in the sex trade. If they aren't killed, there's a huge amount of physical abuse. And so if you see a patient come into you, you need to be very suspicious if they have fractured bones or um, we had a little girl we take care of in Nicaragua. She had a very, very crooked forearm because she was with her sister in a room when they were seven and nine years old and being trafficked. And the, the John didn't like her and he broke her arm. It was never set or never fixed. So she's got this really irregular arm. Uh, bruises, punctures, dental injuries, facial injuries, burns, trauma. Um, there's a lot of things that can make you suspicious. And I put this slide up to show you some pictures of women who have been trafficked and some of their injuries. But what's uncommon about this picture is if you think about it, I'm trying to sell you a product. I want it to look nice. So many times a trafficked person will come in and from the neck up, they look gorgeous and they have on a lot of makeup and false eyelashes and all these things. But if you have them get undressed for an exam, they're bruised and burned and have all of these marks out where people aren't going to be able to see them when they're shopping. This is my friend Auda uh, from Nicaragua. Um, she was trafficked for a, quite a long time, um, had a couple kids, a boy and a girl. Her daughter got to be 12, and her pimp started using the daughter. And um, he actually got her pregnant, so her father got her pregnant. And um, Auda said, that's it. I'm not doing this anymore. You can't use our daughter. And he got mad, and he got a machete, and he started chopping. And <clears throat> she's, she just, you know, she had kidney damage, and her face and she lost her arm and um, these are really difficult situations. These are my friends Marguerite and Martha who are two previously trafficked women in Nicaragua now rescued, now walking with the Lord, now actually working as evangelists in the brothels bringing other women out. But look at their teeth. They've both had their front teeth knocked out. So that's not an uncommon thing. Um, so physical trauma, what about when you get to children? It's estimated that 2.5 million prostituted children are physically assaulted every year. A lot of them will die because they're small, but a lot of them will have um, genital trauma, especially because they are so s small. Um, this is a picture of a baby who is actually a child of a trafficked woman because the Kim can keep control by going after the children and threatening the children. And this baby came in with multiple fractures and human bites and eventually died. So the children are also at risk. Another very common health problem you'll see are traumatic brain injuries because they've had so much head trauma. And when you see that, you know, their memories aren't very good. They don't tell their stories very straight. They don't think real fast. They're just the last 
kind of person you're going to want to spend a long time interviewing and hanging out with. You're going to try to get out of there, but they've had traumatic brain injuries and there's not much they can do about it. Sexually transmitted infections, obviously huge in this population. And um, if you look at factors that influencing the prevalence of STIs, its degree of sexual exploitation, lifetime number of sexual partners, there are girls and women out there that report being sold 40 to 50 times in a night. So when you talk about multiple sexual partners, how do you even estimate how, um, how much exposure they have? Condoms. They don't use condoms often because they'll get paid more for not using them. And if they're trafficked as opposed to just being in prostitution, they don't have control over it. They don't get to choose. Uh, trauma. You know the term 24-7? It comes out of the world of prostitution and trafficking because these young women are available 24-7. It doesn't matter where they are in their menstrual cycle. Um, also, douching is common in this group because um, they feel unclean. And that increases STIs. And there's all sorts of, you know, there's condyloma, there's herpes, there's all sorts of infections that you see, and they tend to be more severe than a lot of the ones that you would see in someone getting regular care. Um, this is a case of um, chlamydia that has now gone to the disease previously known as writer's syndrome uh, because it was left untreated uh, for so long. Here's some cases of syphilis. In my um, gynecologist, in my practice in this country, I, I never saw um, syphilis. These people come in you know, with later um, cases of syphilis. We've picked up an epidemic of syphilis in the brothels in Managua, in Nicaragua, because no one's ever looked before. And if you remember, um, an STI is also HPV, which causes cervical cancer. And cervical cancer risk is very high in these women. We've looked at our groups in Nicaragua. We have over 1,000 patients we've sampled, and statistically it's off the chart for their risk of cervical cancer compared to someone here in the United States. So what about um, teen pregnancy in these trafficked people? I don't think I mentioned to you that when I mentioned adolescents are the most trafficked, that the average age of entering trafficking is age 12. So you have a risk for more teen pregnancies. And this is a Lancet study that's older now, and again, it's just extrapolated numbers because nobody um, in the, um, when you walk around and survey them, are going to say, yes, I'm involved in this. Uh, but they're figuring that there's about 9 million pregnant girls a year, and so a lot of maternal deaths, a lot of induced abortion, a lot of abortion-related complications, and a lot of abortion-related deaths because you have situations like Jill's um, that happen. Here is a, a quote from a woman that was interviewed who'd been trafficked. We worked six days a week, 12 hours a day. Our bodies were sore and swollen. If anyone became pregnant, we were forced to have abortions. The course of the abortion was added to the smuggling debt. So the person I got pregnant six times, had six abortions during this time. Several of them were from a doctor who was a client. He did them back door. I came in the back door after hours and paid him off the books. This kept my name off any records. 
and she reports having had 17 abortions. Mental health consequences, also a serious problem. You can just see um, these statistics of reported mental health issues, and I think really that the mental health consequences are worse than the physical health consequences. Psychiatrists will tell you that working with a victim of human trafficking is like working with someone who has been a prisoner of war. They have so much trauma-induced mental health issues. And the younger a young woman is when she's trafficked, and I'm saying young woman because that's the majority. I need to say, too, men are trafficked. Boys are trafficked. Homosexual boys are at very high risk. Even if they're not trafficked, they need survivor sex to make it in some of their countries and, and live just, just to eat. So I, I need to stop saying woman, but that is, is the more common. Um, the younger the young person is, the more mind-body separation they get, and the more likely they are to have disassociation disorders. Um, they'll never do well in school. Um, they just have a huge number of issues to deal with. And substance abuse is huge for two reasons. A trafficker will get a woman addicted because he will control her more because she has to come to him to get her drugs. She will also self-medicate and become addicted because she wants to ease the emotional and mental consequences of her living conditions. This person said, I was a mess, wrecked my life, wasted it on drugs because I had been raped and I didn't think I mattered anymore. So that's what happened. And just to summarize this part, I think a picture does say a thousand words. So this is um, Courtney and, and Barbara, one from California and one from Florida, with before pictures, before they were trafficked, and pictures when they were rescued. section we're obviously going to talk about okay now what do you do to identify a victim and how do you get them help and uh, you can hear these are women who have all been trafficked who are speaking to healthcare professionals to try to tell you what they think is important for you to know and you would think that you know you're the knight in shining armor and you're going to go in and rescue someone and they're going to be really happy for, for it and that's not often the case these people are very brainwashed, um, and they often are trying to protect their trafficker, and um, they may not be very cooperative. First of all, they're very afraid. Um, 
of repercussions to them if they say anything. If they're illegal immigrants, they're worried about their um, legal status in the country. Um, they may get fined or punished by the trafficker um, for, for talking. They've learned to lie to anybody on the outside about themselves or their status. Um, they may have been forced to commit crimes. Many of you in the room aren't old enough to remember Patty Hearst, but she was uh, an heiress on the West Coast who, as um, end of her teens, got kidnapped. Um, and she, next picture of her was robbing a bank with them because she got totally brainwashed. So it's also called the Stockholm Syndrome. But these girls feel that it's us versus the rest of the world. And if the trafficker is buying your clothes and, and giving you your food and letting you go to the bathroom if you need to, you're afraid to cross them. A lot of the girls feel a lot of shame. They have a lot of guilt about what's happened. And a lot of them are just plain hopeless. So they're afraid to tell you. So what do you look for? Well, what I want to point out to you are there are red flags that you can be looking for. You can find it in the history because they'll be very inconsistent in telling you about what's gone on. They um, lack awareness of where they are or how, the, how they got there. Um, they sometimes don't even know what town they're in. They often have a history of child abuse or domestic violence, substance abuse, have a lot of untreated chronic conditions, may have had multiple pregnancies or terminations, frequent sexual infections. They may talk about the life or the game or the track. That's common. And they may come in and, you know, you, you pick up their chart walking into the room and it says that they're 19 years old and you look at them and you think, oh, my goodness, they look 14. Well, they, they probably are. Um, other kinds of things to look for are their behavior. Are, did they look afraid or anxious? Um, did they, are they inappropriately dressed for the weather? Um, you can just see from this whole list of behaviors that can tip you off. And let me have some of these young women tell you themselves about this. Thank you. 
he would make me put a piece of a sponge, like a house sponge, inside of me, and it used to get stuck for multiple days, and I would have to go back and forth to the hospital to have them take out. common. There's actually now reports of people putting in some chips under the skin, but I have not seen documentation of that. We have a medical uh, blog uh, in the country, and I haven't found anybody yet able to document that that is true, but there's all these different kind of tattoos. Um, And there's uh, screening tools that the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services has put forward with the types of questions that you might ask if you're suspicious. Things like, can you leave your job or work situation if you want to? Was your communication ever restricted or monitored? Um, was there ever a time you wanted to leave but felt that you could not? So you can, you can get these list of questions. Let me give you an example of a very recently published um, case in 2019. This is a man working in the ER, and he said, this 48-year-old man had spent the past few hours stumbling around the department, disgruntling staff, complaining loudly, and coming close to being removed from the premises. I walked around the department looking to see where he'd got to. He was slumped and sleeping on a chair, smelling strongly of alcohol, disheveled and snoring. I tapped his arm and introduced myself. He followed me with a very ataxic gait, slumping instead on a couch in a bay. His observations were stable. I started to take a history. Hearing a heavy accent, I discovered that he was from Poland, but he said he didn't need a translator. As histories go, I found this one rather difficult. We jumped all over the place, stories and symptoms that had been going on for months, sometimes years. No matter how many times I asked whether this or that was new, we delved further into untreated, ongoing chronic symptoms. There were sharp pains in the right side of his chest. Of course it wasn't getting better. No, he hadn't been taking painkillers for it. No, he doesn't see a general practitioner. He had pain in his left shoulder from a fall a few months ago and reduced movement. Apparently it had been x-rayed before and nothing was done. He didn't know what hospital he'd had the x-ray at. When asked whether he experienced specific new symptoms, such as fever, coughing of blood, night sweats, he diverted back to how terrible and how untreated his chest pains and shoulder pains were, lamenting that no one was helping him. More than once, I asked him to watch his language, highlighting that I was there to help and please not to speak to me like that. That was always followed by a quick, sorry doctor, sorry, then further lamenting about his symptoms. I ask him what he does for work. An unusual question, perhaps. He stopped, his head dropped, and he slowly told me that he had left his work the week before. He was a kitchen porter in a restaurant. Did you get paid for the work 
You did, I asked. He looked up at me. Another unusual question. He had worked all day, every day, and hadn't been paid in months. He was told he had debts to pay back. He had slept on the premises and wasn't allowed to leave. He looked angry and defeated. Eyes growing red and watery, I crouched so that we were at eye level, with one hand on his uninjured shoulder. I said, did the owner ever threaten you? He started crying. He didn't respond. I did not go, I, I decided not to go further into his memory. Do you feel safe right now? He did, but with no job and no money. He had nowhere to go. He was homeless. So those clues from that person that's so easy to walk away from because they're hard to be with, tip them off to ask the right kind of questions. So, you see someone, they meet some of these red flags, these criteria, and you're suspicious that they've been trafficked. So what do you do when you suspect a person may be a victim of trafficking? Number one is critical. situations, but I've been in it many times that in an OB clinic, I'll ask the patient a question, and the woman or man accompanying them answer. And uh, it's not always a man that comes in. Sometimes they'll send what's called the bottom bitch. It's the woman who's been trafficked the longest time and has built up the most authority, and she's there to watch over and make sure that um, nothing happens. She doesn't speak up. Sorry. There's some things not to ask. Don't bother asking, have you ever been trafficked? Because they don't know what that word means. And they just think it's their fault. They have walked into this. It's their fault. It's what they deserve. So that won't help. Don't ask things like, well, how many sexual partners have you had? In what ways have you been abused? I mean, that's very personal and can be very voyeuristic on our part, and it's not helpful. You'll, you'll scare them off. You need to put some boundaries there. This, to me, is the most poignant remark, and this, Jeff, needs to be turned up a little bit. If I was the doctor and I did ask you questions, my first question would be, are you okay? It, it seems like 
seems like a dumb question. I uh, uh, just simple, but sometimes it, it can make you break down and really think about it. Because if somebody would ask me, am I okay, I would have actually broke down. If I was a doctor and I would ask you questions. Trauma-informed care is critical when dealing with these people. And this is a holistic approach to somebody that's had complex trauma. And you have to provide a safe environment for them, and they have to feel in control because they haven't been in control for a long time. And um, so you need to learn trauma-informed care. There is a trauma-informed approach to victim assistance in healthcare settings that's out there that uses this uh, acronym about providing privacy, educating, asking, respecting, and responding. That's good for your teams to know. And you need to know where to go to get help. And you can't do that when the person's sitting in front of you. You don't have the time. First of all, if there's imminent harm to this person, you need to call the police. And if you're in a small town, there still may be areas that instead of arresting the trafficker, they'll arrest that teenage girl who's been trafficked, uh, even though she is the victim in this. Most big cities today, the FBI actually has... Uh, human trafficking units in in their sensitive crime divisions and you need to know who's available to help you. You also need to know this phone number 888-3737-888 Say that with me. 888-3737-888 That is the National Trafficking Hotline. Call them up and say, I'm a healthcare provider in this town what do we have for resources here? What do I do if I get a trafficked person in? And they will tell you. It's also a good reporting line. And there's also some online sites that you can go to, which will give you information. Um, there is a group called HealTrafficking.org, which is a medical blog online. We get a listing of all the new health-related publications to trafficking as they come out and meetings that are available and symposium, they have put together a protocol toolkit. And it's important that your facility have a protocol set up before these women come in. And you've got to have everybody from the person who's working at the front desk who sees her come in dressed inappropriately. She may be in a gown by the time you see them um, to catch that. Someone who can go out and maybe record a license plate number as they pull away. The nurses, the extra, everybody's got to be on board and you need a champion in your institution to set this up. There's a lot of different uh, components to doing a protocol well and you can find that in these guidelines. So I, just, I want to just close by saying awareness is the first step of action and it's empowerment, it's responsibility. And it starts with you. And I commend you all for being here today and educating yourself some on human trafficking. And as that great sage, Dr. Seuss says, unless someone like you cares a whole awful lot, nothing is going to get better. It's not. And as a better philosopher said in Isaiah, he has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim freedom for the captives, and release from darkness to prisoners. And this could be a whole other talk, as could be trauma-informed care and these other subjects.
But as Christians, we have the answers that nobody else has. When you have someone who has no idea what a caring father is, because they've never met one, to let them know they have one is really valuable. If you have someone who feels they're of no worth, and you can tell them how much God loves him enough that he sent his son to die for them, you can have a major impact in this area. So I think it's Christians that really need to step forward and Christian health care uh, providers who need to do that. So we have uh, five minutes left for questions. If anybody has any questions, I'll be happy to answer if I can. Per hospitals, we were talking about that some hospitals don't have protocols, but they usually have domestic violence protocols as that's being required. How would you describe the difference between domestic violence protocols versus human trafficking the, the question was, how could you tell the difference between a domestic violence protocol and a human trafficking protocol? Part of it is that the one just uh, concentrates on the physical trauma and the violence associated with it, where there are so many more health problems for these people that are being trafficked. There is some overlap in, in post-care, but there's also so much more needed for trafficking victims. Any other questions? Yes, sir. Oh, my goodness. There are so many good books um, on this area. You know, I haven't looked while I've been here, but one thing is go to the CMDA booths, and they have their bookstore, and they tend to have a few trafficking books there. Um, there's also a lot of uh, documentaries out. There's, there's a book by Teresa Flores called um, The Girl Next Door, which is about a white, upper-class Ohio girl who was uh, trafficked. Um, oh, there's books on, uh, this book called John's, which is just about dealing with John's. There's, there is a lot of literature out there, and uh, I think if you look on you know, one of these websites, you will, you will find a lot. I do usually have bibliographies in a lot of the talks, and I'm sorry I didn't bring it today. Any other questions? Yes? I'm sorry? What is successful for reducing demands? I'm glad that you asked that question. Again, with it being so multifactorial, that makes it more difficult. Um, but one thing that has been effective in other countries, the, only, the country that's really reduced their tra- human trafficking rate is Sweden. And it's because in Sweden it's not illegal anymore to sell sex. It's illegal to buy sex. So, if you're the John and you're a judge or you're a lawyer or you're a doctor or you're a pastor, do you want your name in the newspaper as soliciting sex from prostitutes? And that has helped. And there are John schools that some of the courts around the country are using that a man who's a John and has been arrested for soliciting prostitution is sent to the school. And they have had some impact because... There are all these myths and misconceptions. Um, I can't even look at some of these online blogs that, I mean, these guys are just like, hey, I'm helping them out, you know. This is what they want, and I'm paying them, and, you know. Um, but they're really educating them, and so the guys are looking at this a bit differently. There's an interesting ministry in Thailand, and it's the only place I've seen it, but there's an American group of men 
who go over to Thailand and go into the brothels, which are pervasive because I think 98% of Thai men culturally have used prostitutes. And um, they go into the American men, the sex tourists that are coming there, and say, come on, what are you doing here? Why are, why are you doing this? You know, it's what, what's your wife going to think? I mean, you know, so there are some things being tried, and a lot to reduce it is go, has to be on the people who solicit the sex. You know, um, poverty, I mean, it's the whole other side of why girls are susceptible. We're nowhere close. If you look anywhere else besides this country, poverty is a big issue. I mean, I've had a woman sit and look at me with her three children who's been rescued and said, you have to understand, I made some bad choices in life, and I had no options. I couldn't feed my sons. The only thing I could do was sell my daughter. Jennifer? Pornography is huge. Thank you. That's really important. And pornography with the Internet is so available and easily available today. And our society in ways, pretty woman, you know, we have um, glorified it in many ways. So prostitution has been well shown in multiple studies um, to contribute to this problem. And again, you're right, it's a whole other talk. Um, I'll, well, we got it two more minutes. I'll take another question if people want. Yeah. I can't hear, hear you. Could you stand up? Another good question. Had suspicions someone being trafficked, tried to question them, brought in a social worker, was getting denial. That's a very, very common response. Much more common than getting a yes answer. And part of it is you've got to build credibility because why should they trust you? And you have to be very careful, too, in handing them uh, phone numbers and things because the pimp can find it and they can get in bad trouble. So it is a very complex issue. But they may have to come back and see you three or four or five times. Basically, what you can do in that situation is make it clear that this is a safe place and you care for them. And everything they say is confidential and you won't make them do anything they don't want to do. And you start. That's a start. That's the first step. Thank you all so much. I'll be around a couple minutes if you have any questions.